Welcome to The Fear of God, episode 14. We are, uh, sadly, we're sadly not uh, in the same room anymore. That was uh, really a fun, uh, engaging experiment. But uh, but we are still in the same room with you, listener. That's really creepy, and I didn't mean it to be. But um, Sort of? Uh, not, not really. Not, not quite sure, but... Our, voice, our voices are. Yeah, exactly. At the very, at the very, very least. <laughs> <laughs> but we're coming to you uh, uh, to talk about Christianity and the horror genre, as we always do. And having this discussion is myself, Reed Lackey. And myself, Nathan Rouse. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we're uh, just a couple of pieces of uh, sort of housekeeping business to do uh, up top uh, very briefly. The first one is I uh, want to say thank you to everyone who responded to the survey from a few weeks ago. And uh, we've, we've calculated and tallied those results um and uh, you should be seeing the the episodes that are going to come out of those results play out over the course of the next few months um most specifically um and we'll save it for now but uh the episode that everybody picked to be one of our december episodes i'm very excited to talk about but we'll spare that for uh, for when that actually comes just wanted to say thank you very much to everybody who took part in that survey and occasionally we'll be doing that giving you guys the opportunity to sort of uh, select where where we go next um, in sort of broad terms. Um, and then the last bit of uh, sort of housekeeping that I wanted to do, we, we don't really talk about it. I don't know if we've ever really pushed for it formally in an episode, but if you listen to us through iTunes, then I want to encourage you to go and leave us a review if you haven't. Um, it really is the best uh, and free way to... Uh, boost our listenership to uh, get us out there to a few more possible listeners. Um, so if you have a moment, please go leave us a review on iTunes. And uh, just wanted to get that out there at the top of the episode since we hadn't really formally done so yet. But uh, other than that, well, hey, read, read. I got one last, uh, last little bit of business. Let's sure. Get so you know when um, this airs, uh, we'll have a new president. So who actually knows? if the world exists when this airs, you know, maybe that's a good point, depending on who you talk to. I mean, Man. it's all going to go up in an apocalyptic flurry and, uh, you know, maybe Apple servers will distribute this, but there may not be anybody listening to this. Wow. You know, you know, what's really funny that you say that? Well, first of all, uh, I have a feeling that Nothing. the in internet is, <laughs> the internet is, uh, surprisingly resilient. So I imagine, I imagine that it will, uh, it will still maintain. The internet might be, but is humanity. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is no. Um, 
there, there's a, a Ray Bradbury short story called There Will Come Soft Rains that is exactly what you're talking about. I know you didn't intend to, to actually dive into any substance. Oh, no, but, no, no. I but, totally teed you up for that on purpose. <laughs> so, no, it's great. You should read it. Uh, and, and listeners should check it out, too. It's called There Will Come Soft Rains, and it's all about a house that was fully automated. Uh, it made the family's breakfast. It you know put the family's favorite channel on at certain times of day. Um, it did everything for the family. It was fully automated. But then in the story, humanity has died out. So this poor automated house continues to run for nobody. It's just this continuing machine. And it's kind of haunting and, and has some uh, rather uh, beautiful observations within the story about just the fragility of life and everything else, as is always the case with Ray Bradbury material. But it's interesting. So maybe, maybe we will be approaching a there will come soft rains scenario uh, yeah. even as we're recording yeah. this. Who, who could say? Who could say? Well, our listeners in a couple of weeks could say. <laughs> but um, yeah, but uh, but uh, bef- before very quickly, before we dive into uh, what we what we came here to talk about today, do you have any any recent uh, fun things that you that you've seen or enjoyed or uh, or anything that's uh, on your radar? Right um, now? You know, the only thing that immediately comes to mind, my actual leisure viewing is pretty minimal at the moment uh, when it's not tied up watching scary movies. But um, my wife and I did watch through and very much enjoyed the first season of Atlanta uh, featuring Donald Glover. Yeah. Um, just eight episodes. Yeah. Eight episodes on FX. Um, uh, lots of fun. Lots of fun. It's, it's, it's got this kind of dark comedic undertone to it with, with moments of extremely clever uh, writing. So yeah, I would highly recommend it. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think for me, I, uh, I've really just been watching a lot of, uh, reruns. And I, when I say reruns, I don't just mean reruns of TV shows. Like I've been watching films that I'm very familiar with. You mean like, hey, hey, hey. (laughs) No, (laughs) I've never even seen that show. I know what you're talking about, but I've never watched a single episode of Fat Albert. (laughs) I cannot believe <laughs> and and uh, li- listeners, that's how you utterly derail an episode <laughs> by randomly throwing in Just a fat Albert ju- laugh. Oh my! Oh my gosh! Um, no, mm. what I meant was like I've been watching a lot of old favorites of some of my favorite films that I'm very familiar with. You know, like I'm watching uh, you know, some old Universal monster movies and some films coming out of uh, Hammer Horror Studios. I've been watching, of course, uh, we had come through. We're recording in October, so I'm not quite done with Halloween yet. So I'm watching, uh, you know, lots of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and uh, I, we watched Beetlejuice just last night. That's such, that's, a, that's such a great movie. I love that movie so much, and it holds up so well, uh, so wonderfully. Um, so yeah, mostly. I, I think that I think that might be that might be my first recollection of my exposure to the F word. It is. I think it might be mine as well, which is surprising because that yeah. movie is PG, straight up. I mean, it was. Really? It was. Uh, yeah, it is straight up PG. It's not PG thirteen. It is PG. Wow. Um, and I would need to look up on the internet, which I won't do right now, as to whether or not it existed before the PG thirteen rating or not, because I know it was around there. It was Beetlejuice was eighty eight. I I think it postdates the. The PG thirteen. Oh, I could be wrong though. That's uh, that's whatever. even more surprising if it does. Listeners, look it up and uh, and let us know. But that's even more surprising if it does because yeah, that is a it is a full blown. And not only that, but it's like 
it's kind of raunchy. Like it's pretty adult in a couple of places. I, I'm sure. more aware of it these days now, you know, being a parent, but it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's still, that's not to detract anything from the movie. I just, I couldn't adore that movie more than I do, but uh, uh, it's notable every time I see it. I'm like, wow, this movie is surprisingly adult, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's mostly when I've been, uh, what I've been watching. And, uh, and uh, now uh, what did, uh, what did we watch? Uh, collectively together to to record this episode today. You know, Reed, we spoiled ourselves. You know, we recorded three episodes with like two feet between us, and That's I just true. feel bereft. I feel bereft of your presence right now. It's just kind of sad and lonely in my Aww. house talking to you across the. Anyway, I'll I'll press on though. I'll press on. Um, <laughs> I can't go on. Yes. I can't go. On. I'm I can't go on. go on. I'm gonna go on. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. You know, we're not, we're not gonna get to this movie. Um, <laughs> so this particular this particular episode um, features uh, the Exorcism of Emily Rose by Mr. Scott Derrickson. We covered Scott's Sinister. Uh, I don't know four or five episodes ago. Um, I'm sure we will revisit his work in the future. I mean, I'm. It won't oh, qualify quite for our for our show, but I'm extremely excited for Doctor Strange, uh, which will be out by the time this comes out. Comes out next week uh, if we're going by the actual chronology of us recording this. So really excited about that. Um, I think a lot of Scott Derrickson, um, uh, you'll recall, and listeners may recall, in even our pilot episode, me referencing Emily Rose as uh, once I really started to become a savvier moviegoer, one of the first horror movies that I really appreciated um, uh, at that point in time. And Reed, I don't know if you remember this. I know you would recall that we saw it together, but um, that was like the one time you may have ever visited my my hometown in, in Georgia. Do you recall that, that that's where we went to see that? Wow. Uh, until you referenced that, I hadn't remembered that because I did remember that we had seen it together, but I couldn't remember where we had seen it. And I felt like it was in Georgia, but I didn't know it was your hometown. Yeah. And I feel like yeah, this is too much down memory lane, but I feel like we were going to see something different and I was hesitant to go and whatever we were going to see was sold out and I was hesitant oh. to go see this, but, but you were like, come on little guy. And <laughs> I, 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 as I said, I'm prone to do when it comes to dragging right. you into scary said, scenarios or a podcast about them, as a matter of fact. <laughs> right. Right. And I, and I said, all right, big guy. And we went and saw, uh, we went and saw Emily Rose. And here we are 12, 13, 14, 15 years later, uh, talking about it. Wow. So, so yeah, uh, jumping into the movie, you know, as, as listeners at this point know, we kind of talk about just some likes, dislikes kind of things some scary stuff and then get into some deeper meteor thematic elements. Um, read I, but I think for both of us, I mean, my rewatch was actually a couple of weeks ago. Yours was last night. As far as our recording goes, um, yeah. This is only my second time ever watching it. Was that same for you? Mine too. I had not seen it since the theater. Um, hadn't even seen any clips of it. I was realizing as I was watching it. What, do, do you recall your initial take and how that uh, adjusted or, or or sustained uh, with the second viewing? Sure. Um, I th well, what was funny is I think it was one of those rare movies that I would that I came to discover I had a surprising memory for um, I felt like I remembered it pretty well and then rewatching it that was validated 
Um, so it's odd because I mean the movie the movie came out you know some time ago I think it was released in uh, like 2004 2005 so it's it's been a little over a decade since that movie came out and I'm I'm not really accustomed to having that strong of a memory of a movie I've only seen once but it did leave a really strong impression on me and when I watched it last night um, I, I I'm reluctant to say that my affection for it dwindled because I don't think that's accurate or fair. But it was interesting because I think when I saw it the first time, it felt very novel. It felt really like it was trying to do something a little different. And maybe I have seen things that tackle those same themes or that same sort of approach uh, since I've seen that. So it feels a little less novel from this uh, you know, distance and time, but um, but as I was watching it, it felt a bit more on the nose than I remembered it being. And this is again not to detract mm-hmm. from my enjoyment of it because I had a pretty strong memory for it, and uh, most of what I remembered, I still enjoyed. The moments that I still found creepy, I you know they were creepy to me. Um, so and I still liked the things that I enjoyed about it from the first viewing, but there was something about it that it just didn't quite feel uh, novel. Is the word I keep coming back to? It didn't quite feel as unique as it had when I'd first seen it a little over 10 years ago. So again, that's not to say that I didn't still love it, but no, I, I, I get that. And I, I, um, I don't know that we had two dissimilar experiences on repeat viewings there. Um, would you say though, that, uh, it's probably a fair case or, or, you know, a fair statement to say that, I mean, are there other movies that you can recall that exist as squarely in the intersection of what we're talking about as Emily Rose. I mean, like, uh, yes, there have been horror movies that have components of faith conversation, but it would not be a stretch to suggest that the movie Emily Rose is itself making a case for faith using the horror conventions. Yeah, that is a, that's a kind of a fascinating observation. I would, off the cuff, I would I would say that most films that deal overtly with faith in the horror genre usually, as this movie does, deal with some form of spiritual warfare. They deal with some form of um, oppression or direct demonic possession. And I, I find it to be much rarer for horror films to tackle faith deliberately as deliberately and as on the nose as this film does. So I definitely agree with you there. But I think that there's, um, you know, a lot of times uh, films will kind of enter into the faith conversation in the horror genre through like a side character. I'm recalling a film uh, that uh, it was, it's called Absentia and it's uh, it's really not notable enough for us to do an episode about it or anything but it's it, it was a decent film and there's a character in it who has recently converted to Christianity but that doesn't that doesn't affect the plot very much they just spend a sure, few character sure. beats on it and i feel like that's more indicative of how the horror genre typically treats the subject of faith is kind of through a side window or a back door um versus emily rose um which definitely just charges right into the fray of the subject. That is what this yeah. movie is about, is about the problem and the questions and the mystery of faith, um, as, you know, is so many sort of spiritual warfare stories. And I think it's possible that that was that coupled with the pretty legitimate scare factor that probably was so so intrigued me, you know, 12, 13 years ago, whenever it was that it initially released. Um, for our listeners, you know, I mean, it, it's... It, if you've listened to any of our episodes, this won't be new information to you, but you know, a, we're going to spoil the movie, but just to give 
I mean, to give an honest uh, sort of assessment of our experience with it, it's kind of hard to avoid that. But um, we haven't directly addressed, you know, the actual plot. And it's it's very straightforward, as you said, quite on the nose. Tom Wilkinson is a priest who uh, a young girl, the titular character, Emily Rose, was in his charge. Uh, she becomes oppressed, ultimately possessed um, and, and dies on his watch. And he's on trial. So the, the movie itself is this the trial of this character um and was he complicit in her death ultimately or was he just sort of present and and not not an actual agent of her passing um so that's i mean would you say that's about as straightforward as it gets (laughs) yeah honestly it it is i would say i one one sort of interesting wrinkle for those who have not seen it is that um, I did find it interesting that the so the the priest who's come up on trial uh, he's being charged with negligence in Emily Rose's death um, and he's being prosecuted by an openly devout Christian mm-hmm. and being defended by an open agnostic um, which I immediately found very interesting sure um, and does provide for some good conversation I think that that character dynamic was deliberate on the part of Derrickson and his screenwriter because um, the screen, I'm going to look it up because I don't want to get the name wrong. The So Scott Derrickson wrote this film with a man by the name of Paul Harris Boardman and Derrickson, as we've addressed before when we talked about Sinister, is an open believer, but Boardman is himself an agnostic, might even be atheist. He's a, he's a noted uh, skeptic. And so Derrickson specifically wanted to partner with him in the creation of this story because he wanted both of those perspectives to be adequately represented. He, he didn't want sure. there to be too heavy of a slant in one direction or another, which I found very interesting. And I think the film does give, dependent upon the perspective that you're coming to it with, I think you could walk away, if you, if you enter the film as a skeptic, you might walk out with a few more questions than you had before, but I don't think you're. Go- I don't think it's going to turn you around. Uh, and if you enter the film as a believer, it's certainly not going to infuse a significant amount of doubt. Um, I think you're. I think it's just going to cause you to ask questions about why you believe what you do and what evidence you seek to validate those beliefs, um, which I think is is noteworthy. And I think it's it, it it's to the film's credit that it takes that approach. Yeah, I, I, I feel like it's a um, it's a pretty robust conversation the movie is interested in, and to a certain degree, the movie actually follows through on. Um, yeah. Are there any, um, before we get to kind of scary stuff, are there any, I mean, we've spoken kind of broadly about it, are there any strong kind of likes or dislikes? I know for me, I mean, I, this might have been the movie for me. It's possible I'd seen him in other stuff that put Tom Wilkinson on the map, though. Uh, at mm. least in my radar, and, and I've just ever since, you know, just been a real fan of his work. Um, and I've always liked Laura Linney, so um, I don't have as much familiarity with Campbell Scott's work. I mean, I know, you know, uh, he's got some uh, a, a, a nice catalog of material out there, but I couldn't recall it much that I might have seen with him in it. Um, all that said, I mean, them as a trio is a very potent performance uh, in the movie, and so. You know, for for me, there was really strong from that standpoint. Again, I, I appreciated, especially at the time of initial viewing, I really appreciated the conversation the movie was interested in. So those would be some just kind of casual, more surface likes uh, that I took note of. Anything else for you? Yeah, I would. Uh, it's funny because I would think I I actually think I mirror you a little bit. Um, Tom, I think this was the film that put Tom Wilkinson on my radar as well, and I and I'm very affectionate for him. Laura Linney is somebody who I'm not going to criticize her talent for a single 
single minute. I think she's a really great actress, but I've never been terribly drawn to the choices that she's made in terms of projects. Um, mm. There, she's she's done great work, and, you know, pretty consistently in anything that I've ever seen her in. Um, but uh, but she always takes a little bit of warming up for me. Um, and I'm not quite sure why that is, and I and I, I hate to be so dismissive of of her work because I, I can't emphasize enough how I think I think she's a really talented actress. Um, but for some reason, she's always somebody who sort of hits that middling radar for me, um, and then it's dependent upon the project that she's involved with and whether or not I'm really going to invest or, or uh, sort of follow her work. But Campbell Scott. On the other hand, um, I was very familiar with him for, for two reasons. One, just trivial, that he's George C. Scott's son, and George mm. C. Scott was a, is a, a favorite actor of mine. And uh, the other reason was that I had known him as a frequent audiobook narrator, and I, I personally listen to a lot of audiobooks. Uh, Campbell Scott just has, I don't know if you paid attention to this in the film, but Campbell Scott just has an outstanding voice. He's got a very sort of rich resonant voice yeah. um and and very clear very commanding yeah very commanding that's a you, great you word. might you might say you might say lawyerly oh there it is exactly well you know which is why uh, he gets the work he does but um but sure <laughs> enough i mean I, I think that um i think that the, because i was such a fan of his audiobook narration i went in and it, it was interesting because i was uh, immediately pretty sympathetic to his character who is clearly an antagonist in this story, it, maybe not the primary one, but um, but he's he's clearly a strong antagonist in the film. But I came into the story, kind of him being the one that I was most affectionate towards because I had not yet uh, known the work of Tom Wilkinson and Laura Lenny was a little bit uh, uh, in, in that mid range for me. But sure. but yeah, it was very interesting, and I I couldn't agree more with you that I think all three of them form a really powerful triangle performance-wise, and I think they all do really strong work uh, in this movie specifically. Well, let's, um, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, what for you, uh, name, name a particular scary scene, or, or what, what registers for you when you think about scares in Emily Rose? It was one of the moments that stood out to me uh, from my memory in the theater, and when I saw it again last night, it strongly stood out to me. The, the, the moment when... Um, it, it, we've gone a little bit into exploring her dilemma and her situation, um, and then there's an an evening where her uh, he's not really her boyfriend, but friend is staying the night, sure. and he wakes up. She's not in the bed yet, and he wakes up and looks down, and then when the camera pans Ooh. to her, that is. Ooh. Immediately, very alarming, <laughs> very alarming, oh, and uh, and and it's all the more creepy uh, when you look at the trivia and realize that they had crafted a doll, a mannequin, to be that sort of contorted thing. But when Derrickson discovered that um, the actress Jennifer Carpenter was actually flexible enough to do something creepier than the doll, they just went with her. So that's so that's really her contorted wow. in that in that shape, and uh, and it's all the more alarming when you see it. She's just frozen in this very twisted, um, sort of distorted um, body posture, and it's very unsettling because of how how still she is in such yeah. an obviously uncomfortable position, and uh, and it's really well, well and you know. We were we were talking a minute ago about welcome the, the the acting trio and man I feel like uh, we we kind of screwed up there and need to give oh you're, uh, yeah her her some credit I mean goodness gracious I think I think probably why she might not have registered in that part of the conversation is it, uh, as you even uh, mentioned off mic to me it, in some ways this feels like there's two movies happening you know, you've got the past story of right. her 
experience in flashback and then you got the present trial but she's amazing she was great i mean you you you're by the end of that movie your heart is broken for this girl you know oh yeah yeah and fully committed too yeah 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 i was gonna say especially with in in the light of these adults trying to put together the pieces of her experience and and in some ways getting it right in some ways getting it grossly wrong um yeah i i think for me something that stood out the second time as as a as a potent okay this is just really creepy and scary moment um begins in the classroom <laughs> oh if you, if you if you just watch this like reed did or uh, possible listeners you know maybe that's all i need um but you know <laughs> she's in the class she's in the classroom and she looks over at the young man and his face just contorts and uh, oh. it's just kind of hollowed eyes and are they shrieking or are they just making grotesque faces i can't remember uh, no they're they're shrieking at her so there's sound yeah. and distortion and visual distortion as well it's ugh, it's very unnerving that that whole sequence so she gets freaked out rightfully so in that moment and then leaves the class and leaves the, the building and everyone she walks by in this dark and stormy night um this is happening to as as they're staring at her and oh man it is it is terrifying and it's funny because it feels like a very simple effect right there's not a whole lot to it but it's rendered very effectively in the movie i think i completely agree and that culminates in that really gut-wrenching experience in the church where like that's, yes. she's making yeah, she's her way yeah, she's making her way to the to the chapel to to try to find some some relief and then when she gets in there and the two people sitting praying in the pews, they look at her and oh, they, yeah. oh, oh that the same thing happens uh their faces and the shriek and 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 then her body itself begins to to contort uh as she's standing there on the altar. Just you really get the ascent the, the sense from that moment specifically but then as the story progresses of just the uh, oppressive nature of what this girl's going through like she's completely sure, being sure. assaulted um, visually uh, audibly everything is just coming at her coming against her and um, and you really do feel pity for her and and you know just to echo what you said about Jennifer Carpenter's performance um, she's she's outstanding she's stunning particularly when you just it, uh, we said it before in other episodes I think we said it in unfriended that I don't think uh, that uh, often horror actors really get the credit that I think they deserve for putting themselves through what they put through to make those moments believable. And uh, she absolutely does. I never doubted for a second that she was experiencing what we were seeing on screen, despite my sort of meta knowledge that what we're seeing on screen is complete fabrication. Um, so yeah, sure. she's she's just an outstanding actress in this film. Agreed. Um, were there any other specific... Um I mean, I mean, I, f I feel dumb that we're not like, oh yeah, you know, the scene when she's channeling all these demons in the barn and it's kind of crazy, <laughs> but, but honestly that, uh, <laughs> you know, like on a certain level, yeah, that's scary, but it not to even dismiss Derrickson's work, but that, that feels like a scene you see in almost every possession movie, you know? <laughs> and so it does. Yeah. It's uh, like, that's what you're building towards, you know? And, sure. uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, that definitely, to, to speak a little bit more and, and to unpack for maybe a minute or two, the the nature of, I do think that part of the, this is either to the film's credit for trying it, or it's to the film's detriment for, for not totally pulling it off. 
Um, listeners can be the judge of this, but I do feel like there are two films happening. There's the possession story happening uh, to Emily Rose, but then there's also the far more straightforward character drama at uh, in the courtroom. And I feel mm-hmm. like even when it goes to like Laura Linney's character, uh, Aaron Bruner or something. Oh goodness, I feel yeah, embarrassed yeah, yeah. that I can't. Uh, <laughs> it is not Aaron Brockovich. That's a totally I'm other possession kidding. movie. But um, but I mean, when uh, even when it goes to her and it goes outside that classroom, the film takes on the same tone that it takes when it's following Emily Rose and Emily Rose's story. So I do sure. feel like there's two completely par- compartmentalized stories that are affecting each other to a degree, but they're really they remain separate pretty much throughout the film. Um, perhaps because one is taking place in the in the now, so to speak, and the other one is all entirely flashback. Sure. Um, so maybe that's you know a stylistic choice on Derrickson's part. Um, but as I was as I was thinking about that, I think for me, and maybe uh, maybe for our listeners as well, the part that I find immensely more interesting about this movie are the scenes that take place in the courtroom. Um, those are the those are the moments when I really I'm, I'm much more deeply engaged with what's happening. Now I might be unsettled and frightened by what I see in the flashbacks, but my, my intellect and my emotions are much more wrapped up in trying to understand what I've seen. And so I feel like the courtroom scenes crackle a bit more than, than the possession scenes, which is why I think some people might not find the film as scary as uh, as necessarily some of the other things that we that we've talked about before, mm. but uh, but I think uh, to to sort of shift unless you unless you had anything specific on a technical level that you wanted to, I think we can probably transition a little bit. No, to, I think yeah um, to the conversation that is taking place in that courtroom because as we said, we've got a prosecuting attorney who's a devout Christian. He's a Methodist, I believe, and uh, then you have a defense attorney who's an agnostic, a noted skeptic. And she's defending a man who is an outright devout believer, who the entire reason he is enduring this trial is because, multiple times he says it, he wants to tell Emily Rose's story. It's very important to him that her story uh, get out uh, to the public. And so it's interesting because the entire conversation that takes place in the courtroom balances a little bit of a juggling act that centers around whether or not we believe that demonic possession is a, is a real thing, whether or not it happens. Because depending on the perspective that you come from, if, you are, or if you're in that jury, if you're in that courtroom, which, by the way, I found out that uh, they did not, the actors who were in the jury, they did not receive, since none of them had lines except for the foreman towards the end, uh, they did not receive scripts. So they watched the scenes play out. As, cool. as they were happening, which I think is a great idea. And then they were asked casually towards the end of it, how would, what verdict would you have delivered? And it was a completely split decision, um, which wow. I think is, again, to the film's credit. You know, I, was, I thought that was really intriguing when I found that out. But, the, but there is a perspective being given in this film that says, hey, demonic possession is real. It happened to this girl, and spiritual warfare is a, is a real thing. And then there's the opposing perspective of that delivered by the prosecuting attorney that, no, this girl needed medical treatment. She had a, a diagnosable medical condition um, that was negligently disrupted because of this, this perspective coming in, this sort of uh, spiritual warfare kind of uh, idea. And I think I, I kind of want to talk about something a little different with this film, but I think we would be... 
um, a bit remiss if we didn't at least address uh, it, for maybe a minute or two that whole that whole idea. The idea that you can see a thing happening and your perspective is going to flavor what you believe is happening in, in what you're witnessing. Um, you're either going to believe, I mean, I've heard some scholars talk about um, biblical passages where like demons come out of people and, uh, and there's deliverance. There, as of right now, I don't know how long it will last because I don't think it's getting very good ratings, but there's a TV version of The Exorcist that's running right now. And a character in that show is, uh, is very passionate about like, no, exorcism is outdated dogma. It's, uh, it, that was made in a time when people didn't understand mental illness. They didn't know how to diagnose things like epilepsy or, or psychosis. And, um, and so there is a perspective out there that would look at events taking place and would see it as purely in the natural, that it's a purely diagnosable thing. And there's a lot of people, I think it's important to note, who are devout believers in, in Christianity or, uh, or in the, the, the faith of their choosing who would still see this as more of a natural thing. And then there's this other perspective. And I think, you know, for myself, I came up in a, uh, in a Pentecostal charismatic culture and they had a tendency, as I jokingly say, to see a demon under every couch cushion. Like, you know, they, they would have a tendency to think that everything was infused right. by this by this sort of alternative perspective. I mean, you get a headache and you're supposed to rebuke it instead of taking an Advil. And I don't mean to be so flippant about it that I come off uh, condescending or dismissive. I'm just saying this was that was very much sort of the culture that, that right. I was acquainted right. with as a child. Is just this notion of, uh, you know, almost to the extreme of there are no natural uh, solutions. So I think it's it's interesting, uh, and I just sort of wanted to wrap a bow on it. If you had any thoughts, I'd certainly welcome them. But I do want to talk about something a little different with this film. But I wanted to sort of wrap a bow on this idea. I do think the film uh, explores rather deftly that you can look at a, at a single sequence of events and your perspective will infuse the interpretation that you take away from those events. And if you're somebody sure. who doesn't necessarily believe in the supernatural or you don't believe in uh, you know, demons and angels, et cetera, like that, in, in those terms, you're going to have very natural uh, re reactions and very sort of natural conclusions about what you see. And if you do believe in them, you're going to come away with very different feelings on it. So yeah. if you didn't have any other thoughts on that, then we can move on. But if you did, I'd, I'd welcome them. Well, and, you know, I think the more this conversation even happens, the more appreciation I have for at least what the movie is attempting to do. And, 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 and maybe you'll disagree with this. I, I think for me, the movie is almost less asking or less making a case for quote unquote the demonic or spiritual warfare or what have you and and more making a case for faith because mm. if by faith we mean uh, the substance of things unseen right i mean right you know i i put and it's it's possible some of this will dovetail into where you're going anyway but when i was taking notes on the movie three weeks ago or whenever it was and i watched it i put faith versus faith as a theme, but mm. one of those words was in quotations. Ah, mm -hmm. and I think I think I really appreciate because again, I think Scott Derrickson is using the conventions of horror, which is demonic possession and jump scares and whatever. But but it's it's intentional that he partnered with a skeptic. It's intentional yeah, that all these different right. perspectives are present because I don't personally think this movie is quite as interested in, and, and I might be really off base. I don't know that the movie's quite as interested in 
do you believe this specific account of this extreme situation of demonic activity as much as it's saying, do you believe something like this might even be possible? Because those are two very different questions. Right. right. You know, and, and I don't know. I think, I think the second one is a lot more interesting because I do think as people of faith, as the body active in the world right now, we can browbeat each other with the minutia. And yet there are still the Campbell Scott's of the world or whatever his character's name is. I don't want to actually dismiss Campbell Scott. Um, <laughs> Ethan Thomas, I think is his name. Who on paper, uh, someone would say, well, that's a Christian. Right, right. But, and, you know, I get it. It's a slippery slope, you know, the, the, the capacity to call out a person as a Christian or not a Christian based on certain things. Like, yes, that is a very slippery slope that you've got to be mindful of. But it is fascinating to me that I would, I personally, between Campbell Scott and Laura Linney, I'm much more sympathetic to her. You know, right, like right. This person would call themselves a skeptic, might not necessarily buy the whole kit and caboodle, but throughout the course of the movie becomes more open and more conscientious of and less, I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm getting into some of my own following themes and, and don't want to derail too much. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a very interesting conversation that um, the movie, if despite what we just said about our own experiences watching it a second time, I think it really gets that. I think it's really strong at doing that. Oh, I could you know, completely agree. Asking these questions. Yeah. And I think that was probably part of the intention because you definitely come away sure. with more questions than you do with answers. And, uh, and I, th I think that's, as you said, I think that's to the film's credit. One thing that I did want to say, and this is, I think the first time I'm using this quote on this show, but I'm, I'm sure it will come up again. Uh, depending on what subjects we cover in the future. M. Night Shyamalan actually had a quote uh, that flavors how I think about all these sorts of things. Was thing. it, I'm sorry? Was that his quote? No, it wasn't, I'm sorry. It wasn't, it, no, that no. was on the commentary for uh, uh, Last Airbender. <laughs> that's all it is. If you listen to the commentary for Last Airbender, that's all it is. The whole movie is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, gosh, that's hysterical. <laughs> that's like an SNL sketch. <laughs> it's just, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I actually might have stolen that from The Simpsons now that I think about it. But hey, you know, I'm, I'm probably steal all my comedy from The Simpsons. <laughs> but um, the uh, but but what I will say is that, like he mentioned, you know, things like the supernatural realm or beliefs in the supernatural or spiritual world, um, they're cross-cultural. I mean, globally, every culture, though they frame it in different ways and have different beliefs about it, every uh, culture has its beliefs about a supernatural realm and what happens there and how it plays out. And uh, when you look at that kind of thing and interactions, he said, look at the billions, even into the trillions and beyond um, of stories that take place of, you know, uh, of the spiritual world sort of breaking into the natural world. And he said, how many of them have to be true for there to be something to them? And the answer is one. I mean, you could negate 99.999 exponential, however many, uh, of these stories, but how many of them have to be genuine and legitimate for there to be something to this? And the answer is only one out of billions and trillions. And it just makes you stop and think. And like Laura Lenny's character says at the end, I too am very sympathetic to her, uh, like her character says towards the end, it's possible. Like, and that's something that you kind of walk away with is just, let, let's just sort of sit with the possible for a moment. Um, whether we approach from skepticism or from faith, you know, if, if from the faith perspective, is it possible there's a purely natural explanation? Well, of course it's possible. Is it possible from the other side um, that there's something supernatural going on? 
Maybe it's possible. And I think that, that the, that's an interesting note that the film sort of ends on. Um, but one thing that I specifically wanted to talk about is I wanted to talk about this notion that of why Emily Rose is being possessed in the first place. And the film directly addresses that from Father Moore's perspective. It directly addresses in this narrative, why does he believe that she's being assaulted like this? Because she's a devout believer in the, in the narrative. Um, so why is she being oppressed? Why is she being possessed by this? That's a complicated, troublesome thing. And basically the film concludes, again, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but the film basically concludes that she receives a vision um, because one evening after the, the exorcism of the title, the exorcism of Emily Rose, they, uh, it, it fails. The exorcism fails. The demons don't leave. And then the morning after that failed exorcism, she has a vision. And this vision is basically of, um, I forget, which is embarrassing given that I just watched the movie last night, but I think, I think she, see, she either sees a vision of, of Mother Mary or she sees a vision of one of the saints and they tell, they tell her about what's going on with her. They say, you can stay, um, or they, they actually give her the invitation to leave. Like, you can leave, you can come with me right now, and this will be over, and you will die. Or you can stay, and you will suffer tremendously, but through your suffering, great good is going to come of it. There's going mm -hmm. to be, you know, things, things that will be produced out of your suffering. And uh, the character, who we've come to tremendously sympathize for at this point in the film, makes the choice to stay. She says, I'll, I'll, uh, I, I choose to stay. And then, in a heart-rending moment, is literally ripped back into her body and back into the conflict with these, with these demons. And I wanted to explore for, this, this, for a moment this idea of, of suffering producing good. Because I think it's something that we... We have a tendency, I know I have a tendency, especially pr probably because of my cultural upbringing or just the pers my perspective of faith, but I know many, many of my peers have a tendency to feel like when things are going wrong, when things are, uh, are not going according to plan or they're not, uh, or we're being sort of beset on all sides, that it's got to be the enemy of our souls. It's got to be some sort of uh, contrary thing. That, uh, that, that something is coming against us, something's attacking us. I usually um, uh, make the joke, you know, th this day's got it out for me or something like that, that I just sort of, sort of say flippantly on bad days. Um, but we have a tendency to feel like, okay, it's something other that is trying to come against us to try to stop good from happening. And I know for myself, I too infrequently think about the opposite of that. That, wait a minute, there's conflict happening right now, but is this possibly something that's intentional to be worked out for something good? And I know it's difficult to think about it in that term. It's difficult to try to frame something as saying like, maybe something good is going to come from this conflict that's, that's happening right now, uh, or maybe there's some other intention behind this conflict. Um, and it just made, the movie made me stop and think about that idea of maybe I'm thinking about all of the troubles in my life rather wrong. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm maybe I'm just I'm just biased towards thinking that the only things that God's involved in in my life are the are the good and the blessing and and all of these other sort of things. Sort of not to be insulting, but sort of my best life now, and that's that's all what it's about. Um, but I dismiss the notion that maybe something could could happen to me that's not comfortable, 
and that's painful or something that could happen to me that is not necessarily uh, pleasant, but is producing something good either in me or in the world around me that I'm not necessarily tapped into. What do you, what do you generally think about that sort of idea? Uh, yes. <laughs> to unpack that a little bit more. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, <laughs> you know, you and I have, have seen our, our lives go through things that aren't really the, the uh, for listeners necessarily to know, but you know, this notion of suffering and bearing up under it, though not in a demonic possession type of way, has been a present, uh, a present element, um, you know, as mm-hmm. we've kind of had our own friendship and, and watched each other's lives. And, you know, listeners wouldn't think to know this, but like you and I don't, uh, we touch base before recording and sort of engage a little bit. Hey, what's, what's we roughly talking about? But in terms of watching the movie and the notes we take, we don't confer on those things. Right, 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 right. You know, something that I wrote down, well, uh, I've referenced a couple of these over the last few episodes, little sayings that we have in our home. And one of them is, you have a chooser. Mm. And what I wrote down is that Emily choosing to endure her suffering is using her chooser. And that our suffering may not be of our initiating, but that our bearing up under it with dignity is a testifying phenomena of Christ's faithfulness to the world. Mm-hmm. which is not to suggest that you can't bristle a little bit under suffering. <laughs> of course. You are permitted to feel your feelings, but I think Christ gives us the example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is no, there's, there, there, you can't be like, well, but no, no, no. <laughs> the example is there. And, you know, take up your cross wasn't just meant to be, embroidered on a pillow and thrown in your guest room. Right. You know, like, right. Right. It, it also, it also let us be clear. doesn't mean you pursue negative scenarios for yourself. That's just silly living. Right. What right. it does mean to me. And as I watch this movie, it makes me reflect on that is that how you, how a believer bears up under not the stress of your day necessarily, but the burdens life in its weird, wacky, sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful ways will, will load onto you is how Christ is known in the world. (laughs) There's just no way around it. Right. Right. You know, me making a bunch of money at a job and paying off all my debt and living high on the hog does not testify to the faithfulness of Jesus. Right. Right. It just doesn't. Me enduring suffering emotionally breaking as needed to to be able to know that it's not my own strength that's going to get me through a thing but being able to bear under up that bear up under that suffering will testify to Christ's faithfulness to the world you know i tweeted something recently and you know follow me on twitter if you want to but i don't mean to like toot my horn but these these sorts of thoughts resonate with me a lot and and i was thinking about this election and people's tiredness of it and fearfulness of it and right, right. basically trying to encourage fellow believers to endure. And But what I said was, faithfulness to love will always bear fruit. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, like, like your commitment, your steadfastness to, to Jesus, to capital L love, it, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna mean something in the long run, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. yeah, you have a chooser and 
that doesn't mean the Lord doesn't love you if, if you buckle under the weight sometimes. It just means that this is how people know any of this is real, right? I mean, I don't know. Right, I'm right. just getting kind of caught up in the, in the conversation. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's what becomes powerful to me about this movie isn't is demonic possession real or not. It is how, what are people going to come away having watched you experience extreme travail thinking and saying, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, there's a minister, uh, who I adore. Um, I disagree with, uh, some, some of his sort of social or political feelings, but, um, but man, he, he knows the scriptures and, um, his name's Steve Brown, an older man, uh, in the South. I think he lives in Florida. And, um, he had said one time, uh, I, th I think he framed this, he said this a few different ways, framing it as specific types of suffering. But he said before, he said, uh, when an unbeliever suffers, a believer suffers the same thing so that the world can see the difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know how, you know, I don't want to pack that, uh, unpack that or, or even validate that as a definite one-for-one -one theory, but it's a compelling thought. I, 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 I'm reluctant to take issue with, uh, with a script beat in the story, but uh, there's a scripture verse that is uh, affixed to Emily Rose's tombstone. And affixed to her tombstone is uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, you know, essentially, uh, work out your own salvation uh, with fear and trembling, which, of course, for a horror film is, is an appropriate sort of language uh, mm -hmm. encapsulating that. But I think given Emily Rose's story, there might have been a more appropriate one. And uh, I think I'm going to spit that out right now, perhaps uh, as we're uh, nearing the tarmac to land the plane. And that's uh, Romans chapter 5. Uh, and this is, uh, I'm looking at, I'm probably going to quote this verse multiple times throughout the course of our show, um, because I, I really adore it. And it's a convicting and very compelling passage of scripture. But Romans chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 3, and verse 3 and 4, it says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And it's a, a very, as I said, convicting thought. Too often I respond to my own sufferings by saying, please make them stop immediately. And, and please, you know, just, just get me out of this, the first moment that I can have an escape hatch. But it's a compelling thought to think about, perhaps if I rejoiced, um, made the choice, used my chooser to say, I am going to uh, buck, buck up under this and endure this to a degree in the hope that this will produce perseverance, that it will produce character, and ultimately that there will be hope at the end of this. Um, that is something that uh, I do want to make a, a distinction that I'm not saying that we are necessarily called to stay in in situations of tremendous suffering. It doesn't mean we don't go to doctors when we're sick. It doesn't mean that we stay in abusive situations if we're being abused. That's not at all uh, what we're saying. But I think that the way we approach our own suffering from a mental, emotional, and spiritual perspective, uh, as you and I are both saying, uh, makes a difference. It's, sure. it's part of how we uh, exhibit Christ-likeness to the world, is how we, we how we stand up or not uh, amidst suffering. Um, and again, there's grace for us if we don't do it well. If we don't, uh, if we don't handle suffering well, which God knows I do not. <laughs> if we don't handle suffering well, 
uh, then then there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's mercy for us. Well, don't you? Don't, I'm, I'm going to jump in, Reed. Uh, don't sure, you think, sure. Because I think there's some robustness afoot. But like this thought occurred to me earlier when you were referencing the chapel scene um, in the movie, and I feel like there's there's some there's some harder edges developing to it that that mean I can start to say it out loud and sort of see where it goes. But I think something to me that's really powerful about this movie and important to note in the conversation of bearing up under suffering. One, hope is a key word. And mm-hmm. I think that, uh, again, randomly referencing my Twitter twice in five minutes, but like my Twitter <laughs> little bio, all it says is fool for hope. You know, that's, that mm-hmm. is sort of, if, if I want to bank on anything ever in my life, it's that, you know, the arc of history, the arc of all things bend towards goodness and restoration. And, and that is, that's hope. Um, and anyway, the, so the chapel scene sort of informs this thought and what's something that's really beautiful to me and, and why I even thought earlier, even just an impression to mention Jennifer Carpenter. Yeah. To mention her performance is I think it's real easy. Like the more I considered this as we've both been talking is it's very much a Job story. You know, the more I've considered mm. her character, she never to my re- recollection. And I think, I think this is true. You just watched it last night. There is no, like, it is so easy in a story like this. It is so easy in our own life to think begrudgingly we'll bear up under our suffering, you know, to sort of indict the Lord or be frustrated at God for the frustrating that we do suffer. And I think there's something really powerful about the character of Emily Rose as portrayed in this movie that hits a more orthodox view of God, if you will, and that's that there is no sense of indictment. There is every sense of companionship and mm. friendness that this girl who the movie kind of takes a little bit of pain to illustrate is from the rural kind of more, uh, you could say, non-academic side of the religious spectrum still yeah. finds something in her experience of her own faith that everyone can learn from. And that's that, you know, compassion means coming alongside and, and the Lord, the Holy spirit is nothing if not compassionate. And I think this movie does a decent job. Maybe I'm fabricating it. Maybe I'm applying something that's not there, but I think that chapel scene, there's no indictment, right? There is a, a seeking of comfort. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, the, even the scene you're referencing where she has the vision is not, her attitude is not one of resignation even, you know? Right. Right. It's not like, fine, I'll go back and do this. It's very much, I get it. And and I'm going to go continue and finish this race. Yeah. And I think that's an incredibly powerful, uh, sort of story point. And my last sort of theme that kind of, I didn't mean to dovetail into, but, uh, and why I think I resonate with Laura Lenny's character. The, the, the note I wrote is compassion is born in the doubting. Um, that, mm. you know, kind of Campbell Scott's character's rigidity in the face of an alternate paradigm, in this case, a more spiritualized, more supernatural version of faith, he can't take it. He, his system won't allow it. And what I wrote is that the world, we want the world to run on facts. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a courtroom, like, right. Uh, ostent- ostensibly facts are king, but whether we want to believe it or not, facts are subject to perspective. They just are. Right. And it's right. funny that we're having this conversation just today 
again, we're still pre-election and, and I avoid election and political conversations as much as I can, but sometimes get asked questions and, and get thrown quote unquote facts at me. And I want, and I try to say and want to say like, what you are telling me is a perspective, right? It is a right. perspective on certain information. And, and I think what's interesting about this movie is it's playing with that sense of reality. What is, what is real? You know, will your system allow, will, will your system of faith, you know, woe betide the Christian whose sense of, or system of faith is so rigid that it will not permit a, a chink in the armor. That's not faith. It just isn't right. You know, right. that's a system. And hear me, like you and I have this conversation off mic and maybe on mic at some point in another talk, but like, I'm a skeptic. I, I'm, I have a hard time with some of this spiritual warfare stuff. Right, right. But I'm permissive of its possibility and open to the, the conversation. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, right. Sure, sure. You know, and I, sure. I think, I think we run a great risk in any facet of life, you know, when your mind is made up. I think a made-up mind is a troubling place to be. Mm. Anyway, I know that's a bunch of randomness, but um, uh, I don't think it's as random as you think. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of substance there, and I think uh, I think it, it's important to just be mindful of the perspectives that we bring to it and of the possibilities beyond our own perspective. I think there's there's just tremendous wisdom in that of recognizing that we don't have the firm fixed handle on the world that we sometimes act and feel as if we do. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's good to get, it's good to get the other perspective. Um, even if you disagree with it, even if you still firmly disagree with it, it's good to give it its voice. It's good to give it its opportunity to, to speak. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, I think that's important. And I think that's, that's very, very healthy. And I think that's also a pretty great place to uh, to sort of wind down this conversation. Uh, there's obviously still quite a bit more that we could talk about. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one last thing at you. It's it's a short one. Sure, I sure. I think one of the things that's most powerful to me and is a good button to end on um, is uh, his is Tom Wilkinson's character's verdict um, that I think. Oh if this movie has, yes. If this movie yes. has anything to say to us, it is this: you are guilty, and you are free to go. I think oh an yes! Incredibly powerful scene, incredibly powerful moment. I'm so glad you. Yeah, yeah. and it could not be more illustrative of our, our faith. You know, I mean, it, and it because there's nothing attached to it. Yeah, there isn't. You are guilty. Now do these things, and then you can be free. It is you're guilty, and you are free to go. Oh my you goodness! Know? I want to preach now. That is <laughs> good stuff. That is good, good stuff. Um, and uh, and and we do want to keep the conversation going, um, as we always say. And as I'm trying to find pithy and you know fun ways to introduce into the fear of God's the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. Um, we know that there's a lot of people um, who, particularly our specific audience, um, a lot of people have strong opinions about this film. So uh, please feel free to share those with us. Um, you can get in touch with us in a number of ways. You can follow us on Twitter. Nathan, what's our Twitter handle? Uh, I believe it's at the fear of God. I'm actually not staring at it at the moment, but I think that's right. Oh, yep. That is right. Um, uh, at the fear of God. And, uh, you could like us on Facebook. You can interact with us there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. Um, and Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? At thinks too highly of himself. Just kidding. At <laughs> Nathan Rouse. 
<laughs> at the Nathan Rouse. Um, and yeah, you can also uh, visit us at morethanonelesson.com. You can email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Um, but yes, please do let us know what you think of this movie and of this conversation. We would love to hear from you. We always enjoy uh, hearing from our listeners, even you, Blake. Yes, even you. Um, so uh, so yes, uh, definitely reach out to us and uh, we, will, uh, we will hopefully talk to you soon. Nathan, thanks so much for having this conversation with me man I appreciate it yeah man always a pleasure and uh, check out social media to see what we're talking about next week and we will see you then see you guys